It's Monday, August the 30th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast examining governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. And while I can lay claim to that rather wordy job description, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who's in the business of podcasting. Rather than recite each podcast, we do chapter and verse. It's probably easier for you to go to the website of the Hoover Institution, which is hoover.org, and click on a, a tab that says publications and another tab that said podcast, and there you'll see our lineup. You can subscribe to any or all of our podcasts. You can also sign up for what we call our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast your inbox once a month. Hoover Podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is Deborah Saunders, or for those of you who are familiar with her writing, Deborah J. Saunders, that's her official byline. Deborah Saunders is a fellow at the Discovery Institute's Chapman Center for Citizen Leadership in Washington, D.C. She's also a columnist writing for Creators Syndicate. Deb Saunders was the White House correspondent for the Las Vegas Review Journal during the journalistic free-for-all that was the Trump presidency. And prior to coming to Washington, she was a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, where I first met her. She called herself the token conservative, proving that she has a sense of humor, which I guess you need to write about San Francisco multiple times a week. Deb, great to have you on the show. I should also add, by the way, that you can add Hoover Media Fellow to your list of uh, wonderful titles. But great to have you on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here, Bill. So let's uh, talk about the Biden presidency and media relationships and the current problems he is having therein. Deb, August the 26th, the president uh, has a press conference, something rare for this president. He gives his remarks. He uh, then has a moment of silence for the uh, fallen service men and women in Afghanistan. And then he said something which is kind of awkward, but I want to get your thoughts on that. And here's what the president said, quote, they gave me a list here. The first person I was instructed to call on was Kelly O'Donnell of NBC. And the operative words here, Deb, are the first person I was instructed to call on Fox News in the weeks since this has happened has just been fascinated with the idea of who tells the president who to talk to and what to say in a press conference. So why don't we just take a minute here and talk about presidential press conferences and the idea of who a president does and does not call on. It seems to me, Deb, that if you think the president of the United States just goes out before a bunch of reporters and just willy-nilly calls on whoever he likes, you may be watching a little too much West Wing. Well, that did happen sometimes when Donald Trump was president, because there were certain people he, if he went out to speak to the press and he was in a combative mood, there were certain people he was likely to call on, like Jim Acosta. If he wanted something friendly, uh, there are other reporters he would call on. But let's face it, he's, we're not going to get another one like him. Right. Right. Uh, Right. Joe Biden is we're back to uh, old school politics. And of course, he's going to talk to his press people about, you know, what the questions they're expecting, who they think might ask what. Uh, Bill, you know that reporters often uh, tell the press office, this is what I'm going to ask about, hoping it will enhance their chances of being called on. Uh, and, and obviously that gives them time to prepare for an answer instead of, gee, I don't know. Um, and, and so um, it's not that it's unusual for that to happen. I think the problem when Biden says that is, He's not a young 78 mm-hmm. and he looks feeble. And when he, and, and he's really a lot of people uh, who don't work in the White House say, oh, he's not in charge. He's not really the president. And all Joe Biden is doing is handing those people a few talking points whenever he's he says that it's not smart. 
Right. So when he says I was instructed, what he's referring to is that his press office has given him a list of reporters he should call on. Uh, worth noting in this press conference, Deb, the first three people he called on were NBC, Reuters, and Associated Press. So he's going after wide circulation publications. He's just going for, you know, story, stories that will be scattershot across the country. Yeah. And I mean, those those outlets are often the first three outlets any president would call right. on. They're, they're in the front row in the briefing room. Uh, they have huge audiences or readership. So that's pretty standard. Okay. So let's get back now to the idea of I was instructed. So I assume this the list comes from Jen Psaki, who's working with her people in the press office. The press, how do they come up with the list though, Deb? Do, do, does the press office proactively reach out to reporters like you back in the day and say, what is it that's on your mind? What would you like to ask the president? Do they kind of guess who's going to ask what? How's, what's the science here? Well, um, I covered Biden for six weeks. Uh, and, and I'll just say, if you're, if you have a question that you think you get a good chance of being called on, you're going to go in and say something, uh, early, so this is in the early days of the Biden administration and Jen Psaki. And back then, by the way, I should mention there was social distancing. So right. as you know, there are seven, it's seven by seven, uh, 49 seats in that room. Uh, and they didn't let people stand. And there weren't even 49 people because White House Correspondents Association rules made people sit apart. Mm -hmm. And in those wonderful days, I'd always get called on if I was in the room. That wouldn't happen in a crowded room as much because I was in the fifth row. But if you're in the fifth row and there are 12 reporters, you've got a really good shot at it. And she and Jen Psaki in those days really tried to get to a lot of people. And she still does make an effort to get into the back of the room, which I, as a back of the room person, found wonder, a wonderful trade. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm curious when Democratic presidents come in, Deb, I go back to the Clinton presidency. I'm aging myself here, but Bill Clinton comes to office in 1993. And for reasons I'll never understand, they immediately began a hostile relationship for the press in this regard. They let it be known that they're considering moving the press out of the White House next door into the old executive office building. If you want to make reporters mad, Nothing, nothing does it quite like getting rid of the proximity to the West Wing and the White House. And what struck me as unusual there was that Clinton didn't understand at the time he had been elected. And here he was in a room full of people, a lot of whom of similar age to him, similar generation and life experiences. He kind of had those people in his pocket going into that presidency, and yet they did their best to be antagonistic. I'm just curious, as you watch the Obama presidency and the Biden presidency, um, have they been antagonistic as all? I mean, I'm very curious, especially how you kind of label this presidency in its, in its early phase. Oh, let me add, Trump the Trump people were talking about moving uh, the briefing room to the EEOB as well. Right, so but, part that of, was some... but part of the narrative, but Trump Trump didn't like the Trump fed off press hostility. They fed off his hostility. So that's you know that's what, I'm just curious when a, when a Democratic president comes in and you know you know how it works. Ninety five percent of that room probably voted for that person. So why why would you piss them off? Yeah, I mean, I, that is an odd thing. Now, if you're not one of the people in the room, you like the idea of an expanded briefing room yes. because you have you have a better shot of getting in there and you it, it opens up the access. I mean, the thing to understand about covering the White House is you, they can't really make it available to everyone. If you get a, if you, you can get a, a, I had a hard pass. You could have another pass and call in. But let's face it. They, you could have uh, 200 people in the room and that doesn't get anybody anywhere. So instead it's the people who show up all the time, the White House is their beat, who, who basically have the most access. Um, and 
obviously, if you're one of those people, you don't want them to move the room. If you're not one of those people, you do want them to move the room. But the people who are covering you the most closely are the ones you do not want to uh, anger. You do not want to piss those people off. So it was a bonehead. It was a boneheaded thing to say. But I would imagine that if you didn't understand all of the elbow, uh, all the elbows used for everybody to get to where they are, you would you, you would think, hey, that's a great idea. More room for more press people. But when you understand what it takes to get any traction in that room, you understand how people don't want to seed it. They don't want to give it to someone else. Right. So at the end of that uh, August 26th press conference, Deb, the last question that uh, Biden uh, called on was from Peter Ducey, the uh, Fox News White House correspondent. Uh, Biden calling him, quote, the most interesting guy that I know in the press. What? What's going on there? My husband's convinced Biden forgot his name. <laughs> and that's why I said it. He's looking for some sort of uh, flattering way to call on Peter Ducey. Uh, you know, I think that one thing the White House does understand is that they, let me let me go back for a second. When Jen Psaki first came in re- representing President Biden, a lot of people were watching those briefings and talking about how much the press was asking these really friendly suck up questions. And of course they were. It's like the first week of a new press secretary. You're going to try to do that with anybody, unless it's someone who totally is in your face all the time and and, and, and treats you poorly, which, you know, she, I think you've watched her. She runs the the briefings with an iron hand. Uh, She has a way of swatting back questions she does not like. Um, But in the beginning, of course, it's a honeymoon. Well, Peter Ducey, I mean, she has a habit oh, of backing Ducey. down Peter Ducey. It's an internet meme. and that's, They're called sake bombs, actually, when she does yeah. Ducey. But I'm curious, Deb, as to why he would ask a question of Peter Ducey. You know it's going to be an uncomfortable question. It's not going to be a friendly question. He I mean, wants to show that he's not afraid of uh, what, he, what unfriendly questions. Mm-hmm. They, they want to make sure that there are people who are asking them challenging questions. And by the way, I, you know, I watched the briefings. I think there are a lot of challenging questions that are asked. They're just asked in a more polite tone than was right. used uh, with one of the four Trump press secretaries. Mm-hmm. So prior to the Afghanistan meltdown, Deb, what was the Biden White House media strategy? The president who didn't tweet, a president who, um, well, I guess there are tweets coming out of his account, but he's not like Trump, uh, not as visible in front of the press like Trump was, um, very selective in his interviews and so forth. Did they have a strategy? It seems to me if they did have a strategy, uh, Deb, it was a carryover from the election. In other words, You'll like Joe Biden a lot more the less you see of him. Yeah, less is more is is that that is the strategy. Yes. Don't talk too much. Uh, uh, although, I mean, as I said, I, those Jen Psaki's press conferences they last a long time. She tries to get to a lot of questions. Right. Um, and uh, but with the president himself, it's sort of clear they're not looking for long, extended exchanges between the president and, and the questioners, and it's. Um, and, you know, again, I mean, Joe Biden sort of takes these questions and you his reaction is it's old. And as somebody who is in her 60s, I'm hyper aware of age. Anybody are anybody of my age is. Um, it, but he just doesn't help himself. And I, I really think that Joe Biden isn't as quick on his feet as he used to be. He doesn't look robust which is one thing you could say about Donald Trump is that he looked really robust. So what they're trying to do is uh, talk about decorum, have a president who uh, doesn't embarrass people. And that's what they're selling. Right. 
But what they're doing is he'll give remarks, then he'll ask about four or five questions, and then he'll walk away. And mm-hmm. is that is that sufficient? It's better than him talking too long and stumbling even more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just don't think that the, I don't think that Joe Biden uh, has long press conferences in him because if he did, he'd probably do them. I, and I love when he says, "I've been told I should leave now." Right <laughs> when he ends, when he, he sort of walks away, I think there's a real understanding on their part that uh, every nobody expects. Joe Biden to come out and take questions for an hour. That's just gone. We right. didn't see it during the campaign, as you pointed out, Bill. Um, it was really, you know, done from from in house, and they're going to keep that strategy as long as they can. Right. So this is a different Joe Biden. Back in the day, I mean, way way back in the day, Deb, I was working at the Washington Times, and Joe Biden came for lunch, and these were done in the conference room of the Washington Times. It was um, on the record. Um, we'd all sit there and listen to him, and you would uh, chat with him. And Biden, I remember this um, in particular. He had an hour with us, and my God, he must have spoke for fifty five minutes. He just would not stop talking. <laughs> Maybe one or two questions got asked. It was just a. I'd never seen that before from a politician. Usually, they talk for twenty minutes as questions. But he just talked and he talked and he talked and he just wouldn't stop. Now it's the challenge is getting him to talk. Here's a question for you, Deb. We've had this interesting um, ping ponging of uh, presidents and media the past few presidencies, it seems to me. You go from Barack Obama, who um, had kind of interesting approach to press conferences, he'd run out the clock. He'd get a question, he'd go on and on and on and on. He was chewing up time and you could see the frustration in the press as he was doing this because they knew what he was up to. You then went to Trump, who ends up becoming his own press secretary. He tweets, information comes through him. So there's kind of an access question for you guys. And now you have Biden with the less is more strategy. So is there, in your opinion, a kind of a a magical formula here for a president? Or does it just change from president to president, depending on their skill set? I do think that the public is often, when when a new president is elected, it's because the public is thirsty for something different. Mm -hmm. And that the press strategy takes that into account. Um, I, I, that's, that's what I would chalk it up to. I, and I, and I, I, and I do think that they're much more controlled in their speech mm-hmm. and that's what's what you're saying. Yeah. So one thing apparently the, the public is not thirsty for is cable news. If you look at CNN's primetime ratings, Deb, they're down 42% in the second quarter. Foxes were down 37%, MSNBC down about the same. Uh, Fox, CNN, MSNBC total about four and a half viewers a week. So this is not a huge audience of people, but it would just seem that people don't want to watch nightly cable news the way they used to. Do you think this is uh, just the grimness of the time with just relentless COVID coverage and now Afghanistan? Or is this kind of a reflection of the difference between the Trump and Biden presidencies where you don't have drama every day and just, you know, people running around their hair on fire thinking, my God, what's Donald Trump going to do next? Let's say there are two choices. One is anger and the other is pity. Mm-hmm. And you could watch Trump at a press conference and people loved him or people hated him, but there wasn't much in between. Right. When you watch Joe Biden at press conferences, you don't feel like he has a lot of command on what, what he's talking about. You know, uh, the remarks that he made during the Afghan war mm-hmm. where he would come out and talk you didn't feel like it was him talking. You felt like it was him reading. It's like right. he was reading a, a, a press statement and you, you just didn't get the sense that he was fully engaged. Mm-hmm. And um, so you, you watch him and it's, I just, you can't. And I think that's re- the reason he doesn't talk for very long. It's why he doesn't take questions for very long. He doesn't improve with, you know, the longer you give him, he doesn't look better. 
So. Yeah. Maybe also Deb, the public started to realize that presidents are much more scripted than they thought they might be. Remember the Watergate uh, tapes came out and all of a sudden we saw that Richard Nixon swore like a sailor. And we thought, my God, presidents don't use that kind of language. This is shocking. Um, but when you see Biden, you know, saying I was instructed to call on and then also when he does do press conferences and he has little note cards in front of him and what to talk about. It's a very public display of what we already knew went on behind the scenes where presidents do murder boards and they're asked questions before they go on stage and press secretaries work reporters to kind of, you know, get to the people they want to ask the questions. In other words, we're seeing the choreography in a very public way. It's almost like wa- watching Question Time in the UK, where <laughs> you see them, you know, they have the books. This right. is what you answer. And when Jen Psaki comes out, she's got that really thick binder right. with lots of answers. And so, yeah, they're showing that they're prepared. And, that, you know, the last, the, the previous president was pretty spontaneous, which is another way of saying unprepared. So I think, again, I think that they're, it's, a, it's a smart strategy for them to basically let people know, hey, we did our homework before they walked, walk in the room. So speaking of the previous president who you covered, Jonathan Chait running for New York, Deb, has a column with the following headline, quote, why the media is worse for Biden than Trump. And his argument is basically this, that Trump could count on having Fox News in his back pocket, whereas Biden right now cannot count on what Mr. Chait calls objective mainstream media, which is CNN and MSNBC. I think we can have a separate conversation about that. Now, what he's saying, Deb, is that a Republican president has a built-in advantage that he can always count on Fox and that large audience being in his corner. Well, the other thing he can count on and I know you know this is, that the hostile questions from CNN and the major networks always made Trump feel happy because he knew that people were at home hating the media more than anything. And so he knew how to play it both ways. He had the friendly media and and he won with that, but he also had the unfriendly media and he won with that group. Um, I think the problem for Biden, Joe Biden, is Afghanistan. I think that he had good relations with the press. I don't, I mean, there were times that they were asked questions they didn't like, who who isn't, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that Afghanistan and the way things happened is something that not only was the administration not prepared for how quickly things happened abroad, but they weren't prepared for how quickly the mood shifted in the briefing room and in Washington. And and I, I, I just think they were blindsided by it. Mm-hmm. I want you to take that along two avenues for me. One is the president's performance skills here. Does that does the press smell blood in the water if he looks kind of shaky up in front of them? And the second is a credibility issue here, and that now uh, White House reporters, anybody in Washington now, he's kind of a feeding frenzy. It's kind of the thing reporters dream of. You have the State Department and the National Security Council and the Defense Department and White House advisors, all kind of in CYA mode, all, all trying all trying to cover their respective uh, posteriors in the situation. As a reporter. That means you have a lot of people you can go to and dig for information. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, yeah. The credibility issue, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's hurt. I mean, I, I think that uh, Biden just hasn't looked on top of what was happening. Right. It seemed, and, and then he didn't seem to uh, be willing to recognize how horrible things were and how quickly it happened that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jen Psaki, uh, not liking being asked about people being stranded, you know, when they when they start trying to make this where they're arguing with you about the words you're using, they've already yes. lost. Yes. No, I remember that back in the Lewinsky days as well. Poor Mike McCurry besieged by this would try to parse words and just you can't parse words in situations like this. But but no, in terms of Biden's credibility at the press, when he stands up and he says there's no al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan, for example, uh, and he's completely wrong about this. How do 
how does that affect the press in terms of listening? Do we are we going to start seeing more truth boxes when he gives interviews and uh, and press remarks? In other words, is this just kind of plant the seed of doubt for you know down the road with him? Yeah, we are seeing more of that. I mean, there are he is being fact checked. Uh, people understand how out of touch the administration has seemed about what's been going on on the, on, on the ground in Kabul. So I think you're seeing it. I think you'll see more of it. I I think things get old and uh, you give people the benefit of the doubt when you first talk to them mm-hmm. and you understand, well, maybe this is what they meant. But after after this much time, it's pretty clear that they they're scrambling. Okay, so how do they get their mojo back? Or did Biden really have mojo to begin with? Yeah, I mean, let's face it. This was such a strange campaign. Mm-hmm. And and again, I just think the age issue, you just can't speak to it enough. He just does not seem to have the command that you want to see in a commander in chief. Mm-hmm. And the policies, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I don't even know where they came from. Well, I do. I mean, it's the... the the AOC corner of the party, but I, I can't help uh, compare Biden with Trump because I covered Trump a lot more. With Trump, he knew where he was coming from for everything. And with Biden, you just don't feel for a lot of these policies, you just don't know where they're coming from. Um, I, I wrote something uh, over the weekend about the eviction moratorium. And that's something that they've talked about. And they say that, and of course, the Supreme Court basically said, no, you can't just uh, a government agency, the CDC, can't just tell landlords that they have to agree to not get rent. It's not it's a taking, basically. Right. Part of the issue, I think, is that there are so many things going on that people haven't gotten to it. There haven't been a lot of questions about it. There there, there were some in a briefing last week. Um you just don't understand where it comes from a lot of it. You don't know why they're doing it. And you just don't get get a feeling like this is where we're focused and this is what we're going to do. But, you know, it's funny about the rent uh, moratorium, Deb, was that he made, uh, I guess we might call it a Bidenism. But remember when he announced he was doing that, what did he say? I understand this probably is not constitutional. <laughs> yes. In other words, it's kind of the thought of the president of the United States in some regards, Debbie's like that uncle who you invite to Thanksgiving at your wedding, you think, God, I hope Uncle Joe doesn't embarrass us all at the wedding by saying something. In other words, he just, he at times seems to just lack a filter. And so did Gene Sperling. No, they were not going to do it. Basically, if if Nancy Pelosi hadn't pushed them to just, uh, I mean, just to to recap for people, they, they, they basically announced this eviction moratorium. It had been legislated in the past. They extended it on their own. That's not constitutional. They get the rulings, and and and, but but it, the, the, and so at one point when the press are saying, well, why aren't you pushing this? Why aren't you extending this? And they're saying, well, we can't. It's not constitutional, which is true. And there was and that, but but they were they got so much pressure pressure from Nancy Pelosi and others that they did it anyway, and they you know they basically let the court stop them. Blame so it on them. So as we're doing this podcast on Monday, the 30th, Deb, what are the odds that the Washington Post and the New York Times have about four or five reporters writing pretty much the same story, giving you the behind the scenes, how this thing all unfolded? You always see those stories. You saw them during the Trump years, just always, especially in the Post, three, four, five bylines, just you know, going inside the Trump presidency and how Trump makes a decision and what he's really like behind the scenes. And you're And different people want to get in the paper. They want people to know who they are. They want to right. be sources. They're protecting their own butts. We mm-hmm. all know that. So right. yeah, we're, we're going to see a lot of that. I'm, I've sort of been impressed. Uh, I shouldn't say this because of course I want people to leak a lot. And if anybody 
<laughs> anybody in the White House is watching, I'm here. Um, but, you know, they, they've been pretty disciplined. There has, there haven't been, I mean, the one person, so as you know, White Houses, they, they're, they, they have these power plays and people want to get rid of certain people. And I would have to say that the person who's been on the receiving end of that the most is Kamala Harris, the vice president. Yes. And you're not find, seeing those big, uh, you know, uh, palace intrigue stories inside the administration, which is different. It is different. Uh, you have to feel for her in this regard. She clearly is kind of the javelin catcher of this administration. When you have a losing proposition, they just don't want the president's fingerprints on. They task it to the vice president. Uh, this this was the case with the southern border. This was the case with the voting rights bill that was going nowhere in the Senate. But yes, they stuck her with it. So it fails. And there she is in charge of it. So I would feel a little bitter if I were her on her end, just her, her staffers just thinking, geez, you just give us these terrible assignments. Well, I think that's why she was chosen, isn't it? I yes. mean, let's face it. I mean, there were people uh, when things went really bad in Kabul who were calling to impeach Joe Biden. And of course, the reaction to that among people who don't like Joe Biden was, wait a minute, then we get Kamala Harris as president. Who wants to do that? So I think that there's, um, and so throw every unpleasant thing you can at her. That's what she was there for. So let's get back to the idea of the president getting his mojo back with the press. If you're advising that White House on what to do with media relationships, what would you tell them? Well, I would tell them that they should talk to me. <laughs> uh, I would tell them that they should talk more. You know, frankly, I'm a little uncomfortable with the question, Bill. People yeah. would ask me, have asked me, you know, who was your favorite press secretary? Right. And it's it's like asking an inmate, who's your favorite jailer? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, it's it's a an adversarial relationship in many ways, not a, not totally. Right. And certainly um, a smart press office knows where they can get good stories on certain things. Writing for the Las Vegas Review Journal, anything they wanted to send my way about plans in Nevada, mm-hmm. I was happy to get it and write about it. Right. Um, that was that, that was the sort of thing I was looking for. I, I don't uh, you know, I don't think Jen Psaki is going to stay too long. I think she's really smart that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think she'll she'll be in about a year, and uh, I'm not sure who will be next. But I, you know, they look at they things are clearly confrontational between the press people and the media. Right. And uh, was it Obama? Somebody in the Obama White House, it might even have been you who said this, Bill, but the difference between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to the media is the Republicans start out thinking that the press are the enemy and the Democrats start out thinking they're friends and finding out they're enemies. Because if there's a story to be had, and this is what we saw with Afghanistan, if there's a story to be had and it makes the administration look bad, even people who would cut them a break in a lot of ways, they're not going to hold back on that story. They're going to go with that story. And eventually... Uh, every administration is going to be at war with the media. So my thought is maybe what the White House needs to think about is bringing in a few, um, shall we use the phrase, influencers, not an Instagram way, but just columnist, opinion people. These can be people who write for newspapers. These could be people who do um, talk shows on TV. And maybe Deb do maybe an off-the-record conversation, have a lunch, and just kind of assure them that the president is uh, – as a copus menace that he's on top of things and maybe then build up from that, maybe do something on the record. I remember the Bush White House would do this. They'd have usually two or three conservative columnists like, you know, Charles Krauthammer and a couple others come in and talk to the president. So maybe they think about, maybe they need to think about, you know, some select access in that regard. 
I thought they did that already. They might have, but maybe that's just, again, it's how you kind of write the ship around. Uh, mm-hmm. Look, while I've got you on this call, I'd be remiss if I didn't spend a few minutes talking about California. And I want to want to get into two things in particular. Uh, first of all, Deb, since you covered the man for a long time in San Francisco, I want your thoughts on Gavin Newsom. And uh, who's the subject of a recall election here on September 14th? Uh, I spent part of my weekend having the fun of digging through your old Chronicle columns to see what you wrote about Gavin. And I came across uh, this passage from a column you wrote back in 2007 after uh, he had had the affair with uh, a staffer. And you wrote, quote, His honor may look in the mirror and see a dawn of Davos, but to the public, he looks more like San Francisco's Miss USA. <laughs> hey, I'm so Ouch. funny. Ouch. I'm laughing at my own thing, but I, it was your, I forgot I wrote that. Yes. Well, yeah, that was, that was, I have to say, before Trump, that was the most amazing press conference I had ever been to. Gavin Newsom, we found out, had been having an affair with Ruby Rippy Tork, who mm-hmm. worked in City Hall and was married to uh, his good friend and campaign consultant, Alex Tork. And he walked in, we're all standing outside, and he walked in and he said, everything you heard, it's all true. And, uh, and he admitted to, to the affair. He, I thought he handled it incredibly well. Uh, he doesn't always handle things well. Uh, Gavin Newsom has a self-destructive side. And I think people have seen it at certain times. Uh, we, we, they saw it with the French laundry lunch. They, they saw it with the, with the whole, with the mask, uh, uh, you know, letting his kids go to a, 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 you know, a non-masking camp. I mean, this idea that things are different for him, that's a problem that he's really going to be dealing with over the recall. And if he is recalled, and he could be, I think he could be, um, that would be why. Uh, Is this just attributable to hubris? Well, it's hubris, but it's also just being tone deaf. Now, and and there's those, those are slightly different qualities. You know, when, when you're telling everybody that they're supposed to make sacrifices and right. they're supposed to put their business enterprises on hold and they're not supposed to send their kids to school and then you break the rules yourself, mm-hmm. that really sows distrust. W- one of the big problems that we've seen in this country with COVID is how much sides don't trust each other. Right. And Gavin Newsom just invited his skeptic, the skeptics to not trust him in the way he's behaved about COVID since it began. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Deb, was caught going into a hair salon, which she shouldn't have been in there. Is there is there kind of a San Francisco thing going on? In other words, if you are <laughs> if you're if you're privileged in San Francisco, a politician from those circles, do you just kind of live in your own little world, your own little bubble? Well, you know, I mean, I have to say the other part of this is everybody broke the covid rules. Almost right. everybody. That's a good uh, point. So, you know, so the more you talk about how important the rules are and the less forgiving you are about those who break them, Mm -hmm. the harder you're going to fall when you are caught with with your mask down. I have another theory about Newsom. I'm going to give away a column I'm working on right now, Deb, and that um, part of the challenge with this governor faces in this recall election is that, well, he calls it a Republican recall. He's singled out Larry Elder as his foil. At some point, Donald Trump's going to be dragged into this election. Uh, it's really Newsom running against Newsom because it's a two-question ballot. And that first question is, do you choose to recall the governor, yes or no? So it's a vote of you know, comp- competence. It's also a vote of likability. And my, my theory is this, Deb, Gavin Newsom, uh, one thing people don't say about California is Newsom represented a big generational shift in politics here. He replaced Jerry Brown. Newsom was born in 1967. Jerry Brown was born in 1938, I believe. 
Uh, if you go pa- go back to the previous governors, Deb uh, Schwarzenegger is uh, is a boomer. He's born in 1947. I think Gray Davis was born in 1942. My old boss, Pete Wilson, born in 1933. We now fast forward to the 1960s with with Gavin Newsom. Um, it's not the first young guy to take an office in California, but his politics, Deb, are really kind of directed toward millennials in terms of being progressive and talking about California being a preview of coming attractions and so forth. Question is this, Deb, you look at Newsom and you see somebody who's just you know, very handsome. Uh, he's also very metrosexual, very Bay Area. This may be a tough sell in California in terms of likability. Just in other words, you look at this guy and you necessarily connect with him. Yeah, uh, I guess does it play in Fresno? as opposed to does it play in Peoria. I think that he really, he does represent a certain kind of golden boy. You know, know, he comes, you know, he he has a lot of money. He's married to uh, a a filmmaker wife and the photogenic kids. And uh, he, I mean, there certainly is no everyman quality about Gavin Newsom as much as he tries. And he talks about his difficulty reading when he was a kid and single mom stuff. He just doesn't project it. And um, I think that actually works in his favor for the most part in that he looks successful. I mean, that guy looks really successful because he is, right? He's the governor of California. He got elected by a good margin. And, you know, the chances are, I get it, that he probably will not be recalled, although uh, I would vote to recall him. And I would vote to recall him because of the closures uh, right then and there. I just, I I don't forgive that. Having said that, California is a one party state and right. he represents the politics and people who sent him to Sacramento because he's what they wanted. And we know that he's going to use a recall as a referendum on Trump. You see that from his people all the time talking about the Republican recall and they mentioned Trump right. uh, they, because he can't he, he he can't beat himself, but he can beat Trump. So they're going to keep trying to bring up the other stuff. But it's not, it, I'll tell you, every time I see them talk about Trump, I'm thinking that's what they have to do. That's how, that's, that's not, they're, they're not running on his record when they do that. Right. Uh, the other reason why you might have issues with him is public safety. And this is an issue you've long been passionate about. Uh, it's worth noting, by the way, I didn't do an introduction. You write for Substack. You have a Substack space and it's called Digging In with Deborah J. Saunders. And you have a post out today on Sirhan Sirhan. And what you did is you very cleverly pointed out uh, a gentleman named George Gascone. Do you want to explain who George Gascone is and his role in, uh, in Mr. Sirhan's uh, legal status? So George Gascon, there should, he's probably in the Guinness Book of World Records because he's been the DA of two California counties. Yes. Uh, he was the DA of San Francisco when I was worked for the Chronicle. Now he's a DA in Los Angeles. And uh, he's, he, he has been a benefactor of Gavin Newsom. Gavin plucked him from Arizona to make him chief of police. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also had a law degree. So even though you know, he hadn't really practiced law, they, he made him the DA. Uh, when that opening came up because Kamala uh, became attorney general. And uh, Gavin has been pushing George Gascon all along. And George Gascon just incomprehensibly, uh, we just found out, refused to send a prosecutor to a parole board hearing for Sirhan Sirhan, a, the political assassin of Robert F. Kennedy. And uh, this is something that, uh, yeah, I guess if you really don't believe in killers going to jail for the rest of their lives. Uh, You think that's a good idea, but most people would think that's not a good idea. Robert Kennedy's children are divided on it. Two think 
they want to see parole for, uh, so at, at any rate, so his parole board, uh, Gascon doesn't send anybody to this parole hearing and a, a parole panel recommended that he be paroled. It's going to continue. The full board has to vote. If they vote for it, Gavin Newsom gets to chime in. But this is a controversy that shouldn't even be happening. And the fact that that uh, Gavin Newsom, I mean, we know uh, Gavin, George Gascon also was a co-author of Proposition 47, which was a nightmare when I left California. It was passed by California voters in 2014. It reduced the penalty uh, change of uh, theft under $950 uh, from a felony to a misdemeanor. We know that police feel that it has enabled people to steal guns and not be charged with a felony when they do it. Right. Uh, if you're boosting cars and you find guns, it's, it's been a gift to you. And, and uh, this is the kind of soft on crime stuff that I think a lot of Californians m might be pretty sick of as they're, seeing, as, as they're seeing pharmacies close up and leave San Francisco and uh, car, car jackings and uh, uh, car boosting, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's something that I think is an area where, where Newsom is incredibly vulnerable. Right. Uh, it's worth noting by the way, Gascon, uh, there is a recall effort afoot against Gascon right now in Los Angeles. Well, makes me want to move to L.A. Uh, but, you know, he was he, I've never seen somebody uh, who was a prosecutor. And we know that there are these new breed of prosecutors who don't really believe in sending a lot of people to jail. And right. Gascon is probably one of the you know most notable ones because he hasn't he just I mean, is that the guy you want to have as your district attorney? I would say no. Yeah, it just it leads to a, a just kind of a feeling of disbelief in California, Deb. You've I'm sure you've seen the video. Maybe our listeners have as well of the uh, the fellow who's shoplifting in the um, in the pharmacy, the drugstore in San Francisco, and I think he's on a bike if I'm not mistaken, and he's just grabbing stuff and going out merrily. Um, Department stores in San Francisco, people go and steal stuff and run out. They're not talking about just basically turning department stores and uh, sort of like pawn shops. You're going to need to buzz to get in. Um, I'm not too far from the very swank upscale Stanford Mall. A few weeks ago, there was a daylight theft there. A woman went into a store and stole a bunch of handbags. It's just it's just a feeling you can do this stuff and get away with it now. And part of it is Prop 47, the feeling that just you're not going to do a lot of serious time. You're just going to get put back out on the street if you're caught. I remember going out with San Francisco police to some of the home, homeless encampments and they were just saying, this is Prop 47. This is why you see this. And we also know that's a big problem for Gavin Newsom as well. Now, when I first met him and he was on this uh, on the board of supervisors and, and he, he, he uh, wanted to be mayor, uh, he was really he, he had this package care, not cash. They were going to give welfare benefits to people. Uh, in voucher form. So you couldn't have cash and just walk over to the liquor store and, and cash everything in. He was sort of a law and order guy. But, you know, that's just not, he, he's not a moderate by any stretch anymore. And the fact that he would pick Gascon, uh, you know, in the past, way when, when he was uh, posing as a moderate, and the fact that he uh, supported Prop 47, which he did, and the fact that he doesn't really seem to be in any hurry to do something to fix Prop 47, which, by the way, was passed by California voters, but I don't think they understood what they were getting. In fact, right. what is the name of it? It's the Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act. Yes. So people are thinking, <laughs> oh, this is going to make us safer. You know, it, it, it was uh, that that's just and, and, you know, again, it had the 
support of the Democratic establishment. I don't know. I mean, why would a recall pass in California? Because when you have one party rule, this is what happens. Yes. Let me run another theory by Gavin Newsom with you, Debs. It's you followed him for a long time. He and Kamala Harris uh, had been on a very similar path for a long time. Uh, both make their first statewide run in 2010. He runs for lieutenant governor. She runs for attorney general. Uh, in 2016, their pets diverge. She uh, runs to replace Barbara Boxer in the Senate. And Newsom then runs to replace Jerry Brown as governor in 2018. But I would contend, Deb, that up until the last year or so, both have been the beneficiaries of incredible political tailwinds. Uh, the ease with which a Democrat could get elected in California, Harris getting on the ticket, Newsom before the pandemic struck, looking very much like a future presidential player. But now in their respective careers, things have gotten very tough. And they've gotten tough because they've been handed very difficult situations. She has to make sense of a border policy. He has to make sense of COVID. And it's just a nagging sense, Deb, that neither is really up to the job. You think? You think? Uh, yeah, I mean, Kamala Harris, I always considered her like the luckiest woman in politics mm-hmm. because she just did not have tough contenders. Um, she ran against Steve Cooley, the LADA. He almost beat her when she first ran for attorney general. Right. And then she had that guy. Um, I, I remember I called him Acapulco Gold. Uh, this Republican, uh, because of his stand on marijuana. But I mean, these were just, you know, the Republican Party really does not have any traction for statewide elections these days. And the only way the Republican Party has traction is a recall. Because, and that's it. Without that, it just isn't going to happen. And uh, that's what Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris have really benefited from, that, that that once you move your way up the party, and you know, Gavin really worked hard to get where he is today. I remember when he came into the Chronicle for an editorial board meeting as Lieutenant Governor, and he came up with this idea that he wanted to be bracketed with the governor because I think he felt Jerry Brown, then governor, wasn't being nice enough to him. And maybe if they had to run on the same ticket, they'd get along better. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Has anybody asked him if he wants to be bracketed with a lieutenant governor now? I don't know. Well, he also uh, he also dismissed being lieutenant governor back when he was mayor. I think he called it a BS job or something like that. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Things can change. But but no, I mean, for both of those politicians, things got very real in a hurry and they've been kind of caught. But, you know, with Newsom, what's interesting is uh, you see this uh, getting back to the idea of Biden media strategy. Uh, The Newsom media strategy that worked very effectively for him prior to the pandemic was to what? Get up in front of reporters and he'll say because he's dyslexic, he does this, but he just buries you with facts and figures and stats to show he's very smart and just goes on and on and on in this kind of unique jargon that we call Gavin speak out here. And you're familiar with it, just, you know, strange words and phrases uh, on and on and on. When the pandemic struck, Deb, he decided that every day he would do a midday news conference to brief you on the situation and then think it backfired horribly because there he was in Sacramento inside the belly of the beast going on and on and on with facts and figures and not really being that convincing. And I think it just made for him a bad situation worse. I mentioned that because now at the Biden White House, given this crisis in Afghanistan, their media strategy doesn't work anymore. Okay. Okay. I mean, yeah, I hear what caught, you're saying. That caught you sense. flat with that, but no, I mean, so, <laughs> no, I'm just listening. <laughs> but no, but with with Newsom, what you've seen is uh, to his people's credit, they recognize that the briefings were just 
just hurting him. And so they quickly blew up that up. And what they do is they started putting him on the road and they got him out of his coat and tie, made him look a lot more casual. And he started talking progress, how he was making advancements, not getting caught in the statistics of who got a shot today and that kind of stuff. And I think for a time that helped him. It helped him well up until the, until the last rebound we've had here in California, the last regression. But that's a question with the Biden team moving forward. If they wanted to change their media strategy with Joe Biden, who, as you mentioned, is not a very comfortable 78 years old, how would they how would they shake things up with him? Well, you know, they have in an odd way because he, he was supposed to go to Wilmington over the weekend. Right. And the weekend before. And he didn't. And he's been stuck in the White House. Right. Um, I mean, and, and, and you know, I, I would imagine that he will be uh, gone Labor Day weekend. But uh, well, I mean, it's sort of interesting for all the time he spent trying to get into the White House. He just loves being in Wilmington or his summer home in Rehoboth. Uh, rather than be there. So their new strategy with him has been to have him there. Look, we've seen him go out when he's doing events. And uh, what happens is he speaks, he might, you know, uh, he might have a pool spray with shouted questions. Mm -hmm. He always goes to an ice cream parlor and people ask him about what flavor ice cream he's eating. And that's when the public really hates the press corps. Now, I don't know what you're supposed to do when some guys get an ice cream cone. For one thing, you write a pool report, so you're supposed to try to find out what he's eating. Yes. But also, <laughs> but also, I mean, the, the, it's not like necessarily the time to ask. The, a, a pool spray is not a situation where you are likely to get a thoughtful, comprehensive answer to a question. You get these little, you know, quick, quick lines. And so I don't know that they are his friend. I don't think going out there and doing that sort of thing has made him look any better. I don't think you can put lipstick on that pig. Yeah, I don't mind the press asking what ice cream he's having. Now, if the New York Times and Washington Post did an 800 piece, 800 word article on what the president's choice in ice cream says about him, that I might have an issue with that, then I think maybe we're digging a little too too deep into it. But they do have a challenge here, and that's just how they're going to show the president top. You know, I think also getting back to the Newsom parallel, and that, uh, you know, whereas the president Newsom's midday news conferences were a bad visual, uh, I can think of a few worse photos of Joe Biden than the one of him sitting in the situation room at Camp David at the empty day desk looking at a screen of monitors. I mean, that's an image of a man alone, and that's not a very comforting issue in a time of crisis. Yeah, that was a big mistake. I don't know who thought of that one, but I would imagine that person has been chastised because it didn't work. So you're in Washington right now. I'm not going to ask you who's going to go, but are you, should we just anticipate a couple of weeks of uh, people getting tossed under the bus? I know it's today, for example, there's an article, I think it's in uh, the Washington Times, maybe it's uh, or the New York Times. It's uh, uh, reporting the Secretary of State was on vacation when Afghanistan went down. So he was somebody, in the Hamptons. He's in the Hamptons. So somebody clearly wants him out of a job. Well, you know, I mean, I think actually, yeah, I'm not sure how much. Yeah, he was in the Hamptons and everybody yeah. jumped all over that. Right. Just like we jump, just like we jump on presidents who play golf too much or stuff like that. Um, I, I don't I actually see this team as being they're not really throwing each other under the bus as much as, as you'd expect. Maybe I'm cynical, but I sort of feel like they've been pretty cohesive. Um, they didn't point fingers on. And, and, you know, that by the way, that came from Joe Biden, too. Mm-hmm. He, he he didn't push anybody to resign. Uh, and I hope that's still the case when this when when people listen to this, because it could have changed. But he didn't you know, he didn't turn on his people. He didn't try to say you 
something, you know, I was told something. He just, he took, he, you know, it may have seemed that he wasn't uh, in charge, but he did take responsibility for what happened. Mm-hmm. And if Trump were still president and this happened in Afghanistan, how different would Washington look right now? Well, the question is, would this happen if Trump were president? Yeah, we, would he? We, would he, would he yeah, we know he, he agreed to the pullout date, but I don't know. I sort of feel like when Trump agrees to something, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. Right. Oh, yeah. I th- Well, you know, I think... Um, well, we, we, were told that, we, were told, we were told he listened to the generals in terms of not pulling out troops and also listened to the generals or other advisors when yeah, he wanted to bring the Taliban to Camp David, I think, at one point. So that's he right. was talk, he was talked out of bad instincts. Now, that, and that that's a leak that, you know, came from uh, not from Trump. Right. Yes. When, when, <laughs> the thing where he wanted to bring the Taliban to Camp David. Yeah. yeah people knew how to link to stop Trump. But obviously there was nobody doing that with Biden here. And uh, and again, I. I, I, I think he was caught flat footed and I don't think that they expected what happened, but he, again, one of the reasons I think he didn't get stabbed uh, in the back by his people is he didn't do it to them. And that probably is a smart strategy. I mean, it's astonishing how little turnover you've seen in this White House. Like it, it's amazing. Uh, you know, of course I covered the Trump White House four press secretaries and, uh, you know, it, so that was real different. Um, but in, I think five directors of communication, or was it six? Hard to tell uh, since a couple of people doubled in that position, but it's been, you know, it's been stable and you're just not seeing the, a, a lot of heads roll, roll in this administration. Do you think that'll be that way until the midterm election? If it's a bad midterm that maybe he blows up the White House? I think that you're going to see a number of people leave at the end of the year. And I think it's going to be because they're tired. I mean, I remember uh, when when Biden was, you know, took the oath of office, everybody was telling me how easy it would be to cover Biden. And um, it's not easy covering any president. But there has been so much policy that has come out of this White House. A lot of policies I don't agree with. But, you know, they've they've done so much and they've had covid and. They've just had to deal with a lot of issues. I think they're, and of course, a lot of the Trump people had not worked in politics before, or certainly not for, you know, an administration or in Washington. And so uh, this was new to them, but, you know, um, Jen Psaki, a lot of the other people in this administration, they worked under Barack Obama. They've done this before. And, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing they're tired. Yeah. So I think that's really the story here. Whereas with Trump, you did not have a professional class of people coming into government. These are the government professionals who are back, back in power again, but the government professionals got something horribly wrong. Well, also, I mean, I, I often think, what would it have been like if Hillary Clinton were president when we got COVID? Right. And I think the fact that Trump was president was not a good thing for the country because it really split how the country perceived what was happening. And, you know, as you know, mass became political and whether or not you got vaccinated became political and, and people were just turning on each other. And there was a real lack of trust in the government. Um, and, and there was a, so there was a belief that when Joe Biden got in, that he'd handle COVID a lot better. Well, it doesn't look that way. And we're not seeing that. And um, we're not seeing that the government is really handling COVID better. So I think that, uh, and I think that's a reason to be exhausted that we were, we were so reassured 
that when Biden got in, you'd have these steady hands and they'd know how to handle everything. And we've seen with Afghanistan and we're seeing with COVID that that's just not what that's not happening. Yeah, I think, you know, but in Trump's case with COVID, COVID was just, you know, a death blow to his presidency. Why? It's a situation that calls for steadiness, empathy, and that's just not Donald Trump's calling card. But Biden's in a simpler situation, I think, Deb, because why Afghanistan calls for what? Clarity and instinctiveness. And he's lacking both of those at the moment. Yeah, I mean, he, he is. And I just, I think with COVID, uh, the numbers haven't changed. I mean, we're going through another surge. So I think that uh, and, and that feeling that, I mean, I would call it arrogance, actually, that you'd hear people from the left talking about when they got in charge, everything was just going to be so much better and they were going to just take over and, and change everything back to the way it used to be. Well, that hasn't happened. And that's another reason why I just sort of think that uh, after a year, you're going to see people leaving because they thought they were going to go in there and make everything you know, nice, new and shiny the way it had been before Trump. And that's not happening. Okay, final question for you, Deb. Afghanistan, is it just a story of the moment for Washington, you inside the Beltway writers, or is this the beginning of a larger narrative against the Biden presidency? Well, you know, I think that the public is with Joe Biden on this. So people like you and me watch this, just appalled that the, the, the withdrawal was done in such a horrible way and that people died because of it. And it was just a t- complete mess. And we're, we just can't believe that, again, we believe, too, that they'd have a better handle on this stuff, right? right. Um, I, I think that these great dreams where these people thought that they could handle everything have just been shattered. And that's going to be devastating. Right. But that's the question here. Is Afghanistan a one-off in terms of a bad story, or does it prompt the press to start uh-huh. questioning other ways in which the administration is or is not competent? And I'm, I'm sorry. So, the, yeah. so the, the thing is, I think most people wanted out. They just want out of Afghanistan. They didn't think it would be pretty, and they don't right. care. Right. And it, assuming, as as we're talking, because the deadline has not quite been reached, that there isn't a big atrocity that fought that in the next twenty four hours. Good point. Assuming that uh, there, you know, that there aren't like big hostage takings all over the country, uh, with Americans being trotted out in front of cameras, that it will be something that people forget about because. Uh, People wanted us out of Afghanistan. The public did, and they, they didn't expect it to be as good as, maybe we bought the myth that the Biden people would be better more than the public. Right. Maybe that's the less of the best and the brightest, and not always the best and the brightest. Maybe it doesn't matter if you're the best and the brightest. Good point. Deb, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast examining governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover I-N-S-T. My guest, Deborah Saunders, is on Twitter. Brave woman that she is. Her Twitter handle is at Deborah J. Saunders. Let me spell that out for you. D-E-B-R-A-J-S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S at Deborah J. Saunders. I mentioned her Substack uh, column as well, her Substack space that is called Digging uh, Digging In with Deborah J. Saunders. You can click that. You find that off of Google. And her place of work, the Discovery Institute. It's online at discovery.org. I also mentioned that our uh, website at the beginning of the podcast, that's hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of my colleagues your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.